If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about analytics payoffs. How much value can you create using better analytics? Some studies say 20%, some have even seen as high as 70%, and results are really all across the board. So today I've invited Jose Murillo to help me discuss the analytics payoff. Jose is the chief analytics officer at Bannote and one of the most interesting people I've had a chance to talk to because his results have actually been featured in an HBR case study. Jose Congratulations, and welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. I'm very glad to be in your show. The customer equity episodes are fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you were drawn to this whole topic in the first place. Right after completing my PhD in economics at Rice University, I began my career at uh, Mexico Central Bank. For about a decade, I was part of the Monetary Policy Committee, conveying to the governors the staff's view on inflation, the key variable in the monetary policy decision process. Also, I was the chief information officer at the central bank, assuring data quality, new sources of data, developing information systems, and, and apps, something that was I found later that it was very much more valued at uh, the private sector. I'm sure you're not so, the first person to have that, where your government work is more valued in the private sector. I can see that. <laughs> Yes. So five years ago, I moved to the private sector and um, became an advisor to the president of the board at Panorte, which at the time was the fourth largest financial group in Mexico. And soon after that, a newly appointed chief operating officer, Rafael Arana, invited me to build an analytics group within uh, Panorte with a core mandate, which will resonate with your audience, increase customer equity, which, which is basically translate information into profits. And it was asked to be done at a rate of 10 times cost. So after a little bit more than three years, our analytics group has been quite successful in producing value for our customers, shareholders, and employees. We were able to leapfrog our international competitors as, as Citibank and Santander to become the second largest financial group measured by net income generation. In fact, in 2017, Banorte's return on equity reached almost 20%, which compares very favorably to Santander and Citibank, who had 15 and 9.6% respectively. Wow, you kind of blew them out of the water there through this strategy. 
Yes, we are very happy and the value that we've created with the analytics team in partnership with the business and support lines during this time is getting close to a billion dollars. Just to put it in perspective, the value derived from the analytics projects at Banorte during 2017 was equivalent to 43% of the net income produced by the whole financial group. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, so it's clear that you've got a strong background. You've had some amazing success, I mean, both through the case study as well as through the background that you've just described. Why do you think Barnorte's analytics investment pays off when other people's do not? I guess we were built to pay off, and and at least we've done six things right. Goodness, only and, six? <laughs> well, probably other things, but thinking about the whole process, and I think the first thing that it was really a key issue is that the analytics team was set up as a profit center with very ambitious targets. In contrast, when, yeah. when you talk about them, the analytics team was set up as a profit center. This is not usually the case. Almost every team that I talk to is actually a cost center. Tell me more about that. That's really interesting. Yes, I found out that this is quite unique, I guess, around the world. In North America, there was a recent survey that was conducted by Corinium Intelligence among 300 senior analytics professionals, mainly from the U.S., and it uh, showed that 71% of the analytics groups were built as cost centers. Wow. And even more amazing that 80% of the analytics professionals do not measure the return on investment. That matches what I saw as well at the recent conference I was at. Yeah, so I can definitely see that. Yes, and, and I guess that an interesting point which you have made before is that being set up as a profit center, if it is successful, it makes it much easier to get resources and I would add to have a say on technology investments from the companies. Wow. Yeah, I think that's one of those key things. You know, if, if you're a cost center and you try to get resources or you try to get tech investments, you really always have to kind of be borrowing from someone else. But if you're a profit center, then it's on the back of your own success, right? Right. Yes. In my experience, it has made it much, much easier. And so that's the first thing is that to be set up as a profit center, it has been a, a key thing. The second thing is that in our case, the C-suite understood pretty well that there was no other way than transitioning from a product-centric company that was used to toss and push products randomly among customers to a customer-centric organization enhanced by data. So I guess in short, we had a significant support from the top who wanted to be sage, but also wanted to be rich. And this opened the doors to work with some uh, forward-thinking champions within the organization. And the extraordinary short-term results gave us credibility and legitimacy for other business lines to explore analytics. And at the end of the day, even though they might not fully understand the data or the embedded algorithms, we trust each other and they know we have their back, as you have said also before. It's uh, a lot of uh, also... Not only the math, but uh, and the IQ, but the EQ that mm -hmm. you have to to have. When you said you had C-suite buy-in, it also sounded like you had C-suite and some influencers within the organization. Do you think you needed both pieces, or was just the C-suite enough? I think both. You're hitting a very good point. I think both parts are very relevant, and to have influencers on your side. That makes a big difference. And what part of the organization were they from, the influencers? 
I guess all over. You have them on the business lines and also in the support lines. You have people from the controllership, from uh, an equally on IT innovation. The communications department has also been very important for us. And, and in addition, the, the business lines who are the ones that are seeing the, you know, very directly the profit and the results are adding to their bottom line and making it easier to get the results. So how many influencers are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, a handful or are we talking about dozens? I, I guess as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. But in my case, we started basically one key partner, which was uh, the credit card business and the results move quickly and we started to gain support from uh, key players within the organization, within the business line, and also on the side from support line. So it has, uh, I guess the influencers have been increasing and and it has been key. I guess you get into a virtuous cycle, which it fits on itself. So I guess that's when I was saying that we've, we've done six things right, I've told you about two. The third thing that I think it's was very fortunate is the way the incentive scheme was designed mm-hmm. so that uh, it, it is quite well aligned. And, uh, and there are two key ingredients. And the first one is that it fosters the partnership between the analytics group and the business lines in the sense that the returns that, uh, that are generated by the analytics project accrue to the business lines, which do not contribute to the cost of the analytics team, which is uh, corporately sponsored. And thus, as I said, it makes it easier for them to meet the targets. Mm-hmm. The second reason is why the incentives are well aligned is that the analytics team is paid uh, using a variable compensation that is based on fully implemented and measured projects. Wow. Uh, at the end of the day, we are a business line. Wow, that's exciting because it's fully implemented and measured. I don't know how many people in the analytics space are probably like standing up and cheering right now because they make all these recommendations and then the problem of getting them implemented is like a a whole secondary challenge. So this is a great incentive. Yes. What we're looking for is you want to have great ideas, but eventually it's just frustration if they are not implemented because you have this such great idea and, and you cannot uh, translate it into profit, that sure, sure could be very frustrating for anyone. The fourth thing that we, I think we did uh, right is that we agreed on yardsticks. And here it comes an issue that you've been being, uh, evangelizing frequently, that it's the CLV. And we agreed on yardsticks on how we were going to make the assessments of our results, of our impact, which is not that difficult for cost-saving projects, which you measure the impact and it's direct and contemporaneous. But for revenue-generating projects, it's a little bit more complex, and you need to have estimates of the customer lifetime value. And that will prove to be a little bit more complicated when you're starting out. Did you have to have the CLV calculation blessed by the CFO or other calculations blessed by that team? Yes, in some sense it, it is blessed, and I am blessed that the chief operating officer performs also as the CFO. He is COO slash CFO, and I report to him. And yes, what we do is a kind of like a seminar-type session with different stakeholders. Initially, we presented the CLV model and the estimates, and yes, he reviewed how we were going to do it. And we agreed that that was the yardstick against which we were going to compare. 
I can't tell you how fortunate it is that you are reporting into someone who is that CFO, COO. That alone is probably worth a big chunk of the success. That's an incredibly powerful place to report. Yeah, it is well-placed, and he's a very smart, forward-thinking man, so that also helps a lot. (laughs) And I guess regarding the things that I think that help is being built for payoff, is uh, communication. and This is number five now. Yes, we are in five. And as you have said in one of the previous episodes at your podcast, the ability to tear down informational silos and break with inertia of uh, why fix it if it ain't broken mm-hmm. requires a lot of political savviness, and, uh, which I basically translate into being an effective communicator and a loyal partner. And what I mean by communication, you have like three tempos. The first, it's the communication that you do before and during the project implementation. You need to build consensus around a business case and assure execution with all the stakeholders. The second part, the second tempo, is sharing the results with those who help you get there. You know, this is a repeated game, so you want the partners with whom you partnered initially still want to partner in the future with you. The third tempo is keeping the C-suite well informed about the results and how did you get them. You cannot give for granted that it would be self-evident what's the lift or the contribution of your analytic projects. In forward-thinking organizations, there are many things that are going on on at the same time, and it could be very difficult for the C-suite to disentangle the contribution from each initiative. So you need to explain and be willing to communicate and uh, you know be accountable. And I guess the final part, which is common for a lot of people, is that you need to have a team of very smart and passionate people that have uh, lots of IQ, and as we've said, both of us, a lot of EQ, entrepreneurial instincts, and especially a passion for what we're doing. The kind of passion that you only have when you own the results and when you are full into the business and celebrate the success of your team partners. And it's just imagine, just like a coach of a soccer team that rejoices when his team scores a goal. It's the same. <laughs> I can see that. So, you know, I've heard this theme before where other analytics presentations, they've talked about the desperate need to not just dump numbers or dump data out. And your emphasis of the EQ with the IQ, I think, hits on that as well. And it kind of ties into what you were talking about previously about keeping the C-suite well-informed. If you had to pick like maybe a handful of traits, maybe, I don't know, one or two, maybe even three key traits that are EQ related, what is it that people should be looking for in addition to that IQ? I think people have to be uh, diplomatic. They have to be nice, you know. And I guess that's a point that you also make. People have to be willing to work with you. It's not something that you can impose. It's something that they know that it's going to be mutually beneficial and that you're going to be loyal to them. It's not that you're going to finish with the project and just run around and and not give due credit when it's due. It's a, a basic basic things that you look in a, in a person that you want to partner in the long term. It, it's a book by uh, Yuval Harari uh, that was published, Sapiens, which says that, you know, when we were uh, in the prehistory and you found another caveman uh, and you wanted to do something, you know, hunt a deer or whatever, 
the first thing that you want to do is that he's not going to kill you that's nice. So you want to trust the other guy. And then you look for competence that he can really, you know, hold his arm and then, you know, build a campfire or whatever. So I guess it boils down to trust. You make it sound so brutal. <laughs> the corporate environment, you know, they're not going to kill you. So make sure you're nice. <laughs> funny, funny. Well, you know, these six points I think are incredibly important. And I definitely see this resonating in other conversations that I've had. Let's talk a little bit about the actual impact that you saw from the project. You know, how did you get it off the ground? What kind of impact did you see in the beginning? I think I opened up with something like 20 to 70 percent, which is where people were generally throwing numbers around. But what did you see? Well, let me tell you, the the first year that my uh, analytics group started out, our target was to make 10 times our cost which was pretty ambitious because for a traditional business within the financial group, they, it is required to do three or four times their cost. So it was initially it was very aggressive. But the first year, we were able to do 46 times our cost. Wow. That was almost five times the target, which it was already three times what it used to be. The second year, we were able to do 106 times the cost. Now, wait, was this the same basis or was this a new basis? A new basis. We've we've increased, in these three years, we've increased the size of the team by a five-fold. Wow. And I think this year we're probably going to increase it again. (laughs) And so with an increasing basis, we moved to 106 times the cost, which was equivalent to 275 millions uh, of net income generation. Last year, 2017, our third year of full operations, we reached $550 million. And the addition is getting close to a billion dollars of net income generation of what we've done in this time. That's incredible. I mean, does that make you want to turn around and ask for, you know, stock options or ownership instead of salaries? (laughs) Well, as I've said, part of the deal is that the variable part is relevant. I see. I see. So when you go and hit these goals, and it sounds like as you're moving up, they're resetting the basis, but you're still blowing away each basis. Is that a result of kind of hitting the low-hanging fruit first and you get big gains in the beginning, or do you think this is sustainable? That's an excellent question. And Initially, there were a lot of low-hanging fruits, and we focused on cost-cutting risk projects. Basically, we were weeding out uh, good and bad customers, and I think that for uh, an analytics unit that it's starting, cost-cutting initiatives can be very attractive. At least they have three advantages. First, execution is very fast. Second, the impact is contemporaneous. Third, the results are very easy to prove within the organization, so there are not many doubts. Although initially we started with uh, these cost-cutting strategies, and the first year they represented about half of what we produced, the value that we created. Later on, although we started with the cost-cutting projects, we were already working on revenue-generating projects, which are more complex. Nowadays, for my unit, they are generating nine-tenths of the profit that we're, we're doing, but it takes a little bit more time and it's a little bit more difficult. Why is it difficult? Is it the concepts that you're bringing through that are difficult? I guess it can have all the technical difficulties that you can imagine, but it boils down that you need to 
build you know a measure of the customer lifetime value and and this is a new measure for the for the people within the organization they are not familiar to thinking in the terms of the CLV and you haven't gained credibility yet so you need to build it and they need to believe you and initially it's difficult because you don't know what are the true survival rates of the new good customers when you are changing many things and you need time to prove it out what did happen in my experience is that during the first year we had an estimate of the CLV and in my case I underestimated significantly the true value of what we were doing and for my business partners I guess it was a leap of fate that <laughs> since they've seen the results in the cost side they said well yeah it makes sense what he's saying but on the second year we refined the CLV estimates and all the profits from you know the previous year are kicking in and it's becoming much more evident and by the third year it, we really truly reached a wow moment and it was very clear that with the chosen uh, good customers we were able to have more profitable and durable relationships that translated in higher CLVs. Well, you know, that's kind of incredible that it's taken three years to get there, but it does match other stories that I've heard. And I think it also underscores the need to have that executive buy-in behind you, because if, if you didn't and you're just getting one sample project off the ground that maybe doesn't have enough impact, it's really easy to maybe assume that it's not successful out of the gate. It sounds like your particular setup for success was not just setting you up in the first year, but it was setting you up for the long-term effort of trial and failure so that you could get to the right answer. Yes, you're right. Good, good. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how you pick a good project. And we oftentimes hear about quick wins and people needing quick wins to get started. You know, let's say that I have these six things and I've set up myself for some reasonable amount of success. How do I find a good project to start with? Picking the right project is a mixture of science, business knowledge, and especially distinguishing how hard will it be to sort out the inevitable institutional hurdles. So it's like a political side. Mm. Let me ex exemplify with one of my favorite projects, which is one of the first ones that I did at Banorte, which is an analytical redesign of the credit card cross-sell process, and a project that it's on its third year of maturity. And on the political side, I found, as I've said previously, willing, forward-thinking partner in the credit card business. It made sense on the fact that we were not going to have a lot of, of uh, pushback or headwinds. On the business knowledge side, well, it was evident that uh, although this was a very profitable business for Banorte, the share of market that we had was way below the natural quota, and cross-sell efforts were scant and with very dismal results. And on the science part, we dissected the problem and learned uh, that we didn't have good estimates of our customers' income, lacked good contact data, we didn't use uh, non-intrusive digital channels for the sales effort, and the whole process was too cumbersome for our customers. So I guess we did six things, you know, in partnership with our, you know, the business lines and support departments. We built new income estimate models in partnership with the risk departments, and different people can build more or less accurate models, but a hard part is to start off by aligning with the partner so that you can implement the model, and we were able to do that. The 
second thing that we did is that we incorporated digital channels for the sales process in partnership with the managing director from the channel department. We improved contact data by a sevenfold in partnership wow. with the CDO. We built a new offer which recognizes the fact that cross-sale customers were much better than walk-ins. Mm. We made a very efficient delivery process, which was very convenient for our customers, and we did that together with the operations department. And we set up with the product division multi-waving campaign effort to increase activation and first usage metrics. And since then, the process has been on a continuous improvement path. And Nowadays, we're doing with this thing two very neat things. It's uh, using nudging and uh, using speech-to-text algorithms to improve the sales process. Wow. And when you say speech-to-text algorithms, are, are you including sentiment in there too? Yes. Nice. Yes. And that's a point that you've also made before. I think the for us, the, the game changer is when you start really listening in a systematic fashion to your customers. Mm. Mm-hmm. you learn a lot. And that's when you get a lot of improvement. I notice in the six things that you've called out that you're really stretching across the organization. And again, it underscores the need to one, be well positioned in the organization with a powerful executive that has your back and at the same time be able to reach across to all your different partners, whether they're in the product division or the CDO or the risk department. You've got all these different groups to reach across in order to get the CLV tactics that you want to roll out to be holistically successful. I could imagine if you only had one part of that picture, it might have been very difficult to get to the level of success that you had. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. At the end of the day, it was redesigning the process. The biggest complexity, I guess, was the alignment of all the stakeholders. And, you know, I guess that's the hardest part, you know, having people to work in a project that you think it has merit. They have to be fully convinced and they, and there's a lot of trust that has to be built within the team. It's, you know, as any good sports team uh, will do, you, you need to trust your teammates mm-hmm. that they are going to perform and do their part. Otherwise, you know, in this case, there are, I pointed out six things and there are a plethora of other things. And if one of the parts doesn't do its part, you're not going to see the wonderful uh, outcomes that you have the potential to get. Well, let's talk about that. Did you see a particular outcome from this credit card project? Yeah. Well, this credit card project has had a very relevant impact on the business. Last year, in 2017, the customer equity built with this, only with this project was equivalent to $130 million U.S. dollars in uh, net income. We are very happy that this case was even recognized by the industry with the Lafferty Global Award on credit card excellence. So yeah, we're very happy with this. High five. Wow. (laughs) That's, I mean, that must have made your whole team just shine. They must have felt so good. Yeah, everything is very proud of. What I would say is the whole Benorta team on the product side, on the channel side, and, you know, everybody that was involved in this redesign. Very nice. Now, if people have questions and they want to ask you more details about this particular experience, is it okay for them to reach out to you and how would they reach you? Yes, I would be very glad to. And uh, probably the most efficient way is uh, through LinkedIn. Okay. Is there any trick to finding you at LinkedIn? You know, like, do they just look for Jose Marillo or do they look for more names than that? 
I, I guess they put Jose Morello, Banorte, they'll find me. Okay, good enough, good enough. Sometimes there's a <laughs> lot of people that come up on any search on LinkedIn. So let's take a minute to summarize a little bit of our conversation, and then you can tell me if I missed anything. Here's what I heard. First, you know, when we talk about why should you care, we always start there. Why should I care about getting my analytics investment to pay off? And the conclusion we came to here is that it's more than the payoff. It's really about being set up to succeed and kind of getting to a virtuous cycle. We talked about six factors, everything from being set up as a profit center with targets and accountability to support from the top, aligned incentives, rigorous assessment of the impact or results. And that's where I talk about them as being blessed by the CFO or being blessed by someone internally who's going to back up your results. Good strategic communication partners across the board. And finally, smart people who have IQ and EQ. Did I miss anything there? That's right. Okay, good. Um, Second, then we talked about the kind of impact. And boy, there were a lot of really good examples here. But I think what was fascinating to me was that at Benorte, it's not an instant process. That year one, you pretty much had a directional CLV. And then year two, you refined it. And it wasn't until year three you got to that wow. And then we saw that in the profits that were coming out. So in the first year, you had 46 times the cost even though the goal was 10, and the second year you were at 106 times, and the third year 200 times. It's an amazing ramp showing that there was an awful lot of value the group could bring to the organization. Anything else you want to add to impact? I guess you summarized it perfectly. Okay. (laughs) And then finally, we talked about picking a good project to start. And I particularly like your mix of not just science and business knowledge, but the political element that we shouldn't shy away from, even though that can be hard to quantify. The institutional hurdles that every organization hits, they are landmines, and you have to navigate them out of the gate. Otherwise, I think you could easily end up halfway down the path with a project and then have somebody working against you instead of all boats rowing the same direction. So the project that you pick has to have those good fundamentals, good politics, good people behind you, and it almost sounds like it has to be anchored at the top of the organization in order to get that three-year continuous improvement path kicked off. Would you agree? Did I miss anything? Yes, I agree. I agree. And uh, it certainly helps it to, to get it anchored at the top. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as always, everything that we discussed today is going to be linked into the ambitiondata.com slash podcast site. And on this podcast, we're going to have the link to the Corinium survey results. We're going to have the HBR case study. And then you also mentioned a book along the way that I'll pick up from you from Yuval Harare. And I want to make sure we link to that as well. So we'll include that. Jose, I want to thank you for joining today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Allison. I love your show. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Now, remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen 
that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.